Great to see you this morning. Um, If you've got a Bible with you, if you could turn to 2 Kings, chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 15. It's the last uh, week on our series on Elijah, but do not fear. We are then just changing a couple of letters and looking at Elisha for the next uh, while. But we definitely see an end to what Elijah's been doing in this story. And on the back, as Andy intimated earlier, of, uh, of the week's event, however you're feeling about that, uh, whatever's gone before, I'd imagine, if, uh, if this room is representative of our country, we would be split down the middle as regards how we would have voted, maybe how we would have responded on Friday. But I guess we're all in the same boat as this. We want to see uh, God's kingdom advance from this point. We want to see things change for good from this point. And actually, the message I prepared, which is, wasn't on the back of Thursday or anything, uh, I think that's some really helpful things to say for us in that light, and generally as well. So, uh, Let's get on with the uh, thing. The last uh, occasion that we see Elijah um, in his life is in 2 Kings 2, and I'll take up from verse 1. Here we go. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elijah then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho, who were watching, said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. This character, Elisha, who, as we see, takes up the mantle of Elijah here. We're going to be returning to him uh, in weeks to come and looking at uh, his, his ministry and his life and what he did for God and learning from him. But today's really about ending what we've seen about Elijah, uh, the end of Elijah's story, really. And if you've not been to, uh, if it's the first time with us today, you've not been around for the talks in this series, there might be bits of this passage just jump out your straight and goes, oh, I hope he's going to talk about that or that. Things like chariots of fire, uh, parting water, uh, with a cloak, you know, whirlwinds that take you up to heaven, all that supernatural stuff. And you're like, yes, 
really sorry to disappoint, <laughs> disappoint you today. Uh, if you have been with us for the rest of it, these things are probably like, oh yeah, here we go again. Yeah, yeah, more of this, more of this. Because this has actually become very familiar to us <laughs> in the story of Elijah. And I'd encourage you, if you've not caught up here, to go back and see. Because these supernatural elements, this is the similarities and the continuity we see from what we've seen before in this. All these amazing miracles. This is what this guy uh, lived with. Okay, But I want to focus on a difference between this story and what we've seen before. And it's quite a striking difference actually but it's somewhat more mundane it's not got to do with the kind of the fire and the whirlwinds and the miracles actually it's got to do with the the people who are in this story so I want to draw our attention to today there's a massive difference between how Elijah ends his ministry in his life and how he's done almost everything beforehand according to the right to the kings before it was on his own he ends surrounded by people think back to what we've seen so far. Remember when Elijah burst onto the scene, 1 Kings 17, he confronts the king, declares a drought. He does it on his own. It's him. He does it, him and the king. Then he goes off. He goes off into the desert on his own. Sent to Zarephath, meets a widow there. The son lives in their house, but he's doing his mission on his own. Goes again to confront Ahab on, the Mount, on Mount Carmel. There's this wonderful encounter and confrontation between him and the prophets. It's literally him and 450 prophets of Baal. It's Elijah takes on the world. Okay? He's on his own. When he flees, as we looked at last time, if you were here two weeks ago, before uh, Church Central won last week, uh, he flees on his own. But it's not just that he likes to do things on his own. In his mind, at least... He is actually on his own as well. Is the Lone Ranger can't there? Is he? Yes, good. Uh, I see. Um, he says, he, he makes this complaint a number of times. He states it to the people on the mountain. He says it to God twice in prayers. He said, look, they've killed all your prophets. I am the only one left. That's Elijah's state of mind. Okay, I'm the only one. He's wrong. God corrects him on it. But that's his state of mind. He's on his own. And you can see that all the way through uh, the story. However, then we come to this story, the end of his life. We, had a, we haven't had to, there's a few stories I'll reference in between him fleeing from Jezebel, which we saw in our last talk, and this talk. I'll reference a few of them. But basically, he's gone a bit quiet for Elijah for a while. Some years have passed, and then we meet him again at the end of his life, and everything's different. There's people everywhere. We've got a kind of partner for Elijah, Elisha, who's alongside him. Now, obviously, Elisha is not a partner. He's a disciple or a follower uh, of, of Elijah in this sort of case. Uh, but they're walking, they're talking, they're side by side. It's like there's uh, already there's this kind of kinship between the two and it's like they're partners in the whole affair. But that's not all. It's not just those two. They're surrounded by prophets. Prophets galore. Okay, I don't know if that thought fills you with <laughs> your heart with joy or misery. Ah, prophets everywhere. What are they going to be doing? But it's, it's not just prophets. It's whole companies of prophets. Okay. There's lots of talk about what these companies of the prophets, who uh, were so cheeky to Elisha all the way through the story, well, what were they? How did that work? And most commentators would say that while they, we can't pin it down exactly what they were, they would be organized kind of training schools for prophets, kind of official groups of practicing prophets. And here they are, not just kind of one of them, but like three of them. I'll just explain why they, I'll get to three in a few minutes. Uh, but all there as Elijah goes back to heaven. And it's interesting as well to know what actually Elijah's up to here. Because it's not just that he's just bumped into these people by chance. It's like, after heaven, say, oh, it's nice to see you. What a coincidence. Great, you can all see me as I get taken up in a whirlwind. No, he is clearly deliberately investing in these people as his life comes to an end. 
with Elisha, we see that most obviously. Again, rewinding a couple of weeks when Elijah has, after this great victory on Carmel, he retreats, he's scared, he goes into depression. And uh, God lifts him out of depression by giving him a job to do. He says to him, he straightens out his, uh, the facts for him. And he, as Jonathan talked about a few weeks ago, he commissions him and he says to him, right, Elijah, this is what you need to do now. Go and find three people. Find a guy called Haziel. And anoint him as king. He's going to be king of Aram. Okay, that's a country around the corner. Find Jehu, anoint him as king of Israel. Okay, and then find this guy Elisha, and he will be your successor as a prophet. Now, it wasn't that Elijah uh, had been operating on his own up to the point, but it's not just that. Anyway, it, it seems that he had taken the entire burden of his mission on himself and himself alone. And I think there's, there's a slight correct, there's a corrective word in this from God as he says, go off Elijah, come get out the dumps and go and commission this person, commission this person, commission this person. And what he's saying to him is, look, you're not meant to be doing this on your own. It's not all on your shoulders. It's not just on you, Elijah. It's not up to you alone to turn my people back to me on your own. It's like God saying, no, you need to change the way you operate. You need to start investing in some other people here. And here's three of them specifically. And Elijah takes this call very, very seriously. Again, in a passage we're going to come back to in a few weeks, in 1 Kings 19, he goes and finds this Elisha who's been told to anoint. And he, he calls him from what he's doing. It's not just he anoints him and says, right, by the way, in years to come, you will take on the role. Now, at the end of that, in 1 Kings 19, 19 to 21, at the end of that passage, it says, Elisha set out to become Elijah's attendant. And that's what we see continued here years later. He's been at his side for years. Elijah's taken him on proactively. He said, look, come beside me. Do the journey with me. He did that. He deliberately went about that himself. So he's doing it. He's deliberately investing in this one guy, Elisha. And I think he's deliberately investing in these companies of prophets as well. And while this is somewhat speculative in some ways, I think we can join some dots up here. Because these two prophets in this story, what they seem to be doing is they seem to be doing a circuit of all the local companies of prophets, which seems to have an air of familiarity about it, as if this is something these guys did. I'll explain what I mean. In this story, what you've got is you've got them visiting three places. They start at a place called Gilgal, they go off to Bethel, and then they go to Jericho. Now, Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho are the only three places in Israel mentioned uh, in, in the books of Kings that have companies of prophets in them. Okay? We have two of that from this story. It talks about company of prophets in Bethel and one in Jericho. Actually, in 2 Kings 4, although it's not mentioned at the beginning, Gilgal, coincidentally, was a place also that had its own company of prophets. So what are they doing? Why is he going to these places? Well, it seems clear he's not just picking random places and bumping into prophets. No, he's deliberate. No, this is what we do. Me and Elijah, this is what we do. And we're doing it again. Even though it's the last time, we're doing it again. We're going to Gilgal. We're going to see the companies of prophets there. We're going to see how they're doing, check on them, feed into what they're doing, do some training with them. Right, now we're off over here. We're going to go to the next company of prophets. We're going to go to the next one. Now, I don't think we know or can say for sure whether Elijah was instrumental in organizing these groups. I think there's a big hint 
to this. I mean, when Elijah is away in misery, running from Jezebel, there are followers, there are prophets, but they're scattered, they're underground. You come here, and suddenly they're all organized. It would, in, the implication surely would be he helped found these sort of groups. But whether, whether we go with that or not, it seems quite clear from this passage, these companies are now looking to Elijah, and he has at some point proactively sought them out to invest in them. And that's what he seems to be doing as he gets ready to be taken up to heaven. So in this context then, surrounded by a whole group of prophets who are looking to him that Elijah's life ends. And the point is simple. Elijah may be gone, but he's not just left one person to continue his task. There are loads of them. What we see in this passage is Elijah's legacy. What does he leave behind, this great mighty man of God? Well, he leaves stories of miracles. He leaves this, he leaves this. On the ground, what did he leave? He left hundreds of people who were just like him and were looking to him and who he had invested in. I wonder for you, when you think of the legacy that you'd like to leave in your life, if you would see that as an appropriate legacy, something you'd be proud of. Or maybe for many of us, we're still captured more by the example Elijah sets earlier in the story regarding legacy. Let me ask you, do you want to make a difference with your life? It sounds like a kind of very kind of school type question, young people, do you want to make a difference, do something with yourself? But it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Are we just going through the motions or do we want to make a change? Particularly on the back of a week like this, the occasions that are going on, whatever's gone before, what part are we going to play in changing things for the better in the future, in making our mark to make things better for the next generation? Do you think It's more about the mark you can make when you think things like that through your individual skill and your courage and your cleverness. I will make a difference. People will remember me. Or, actually, have you learned like Elijah's obviously learned in this passage, the most powerful way we can bring change is ultimately in investing in other people. The world around us frames it all along the lines of Elijah's early life. He would fit perfectly in with the the picture given us in the early years uh, of how the world sort of sees things. There's this myth that's arisen of the great human being, okay? The one who stands shoulders, head and shoulders above everyone else, who single-handedly wins the day, and everyone remembers them and looks up to them and says, wow, they were great, okay? James Bond or Superman or even in history, kind of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Prince, I don't know. But people who, through their genius or through their hard work or through that, that's their legacy. Whoa, they're amazing. And that's what you end up thinking, really. And actually, we can fall for that myth. And if you have fallen for that myth this morning, I think God would want to open your eyes to a more effective way of changing the world, of advancing God's kingdom, of making a difference. And it's through investing in other people and putting time proactively to do that. I think investing in others takes three things. The last one will be quite practical. The other two are things I think we've got to notice and we've got to wrestle with before we even think about doing this. Okay? The first thing that investing in others takes is humility. There is a humility that you need to invest in others. And actually, there's a humility that we understand about who we are in the grand scheme of things that means that we realize we have to do this. Because... At the end of the day, and sorry about this, guys, to kind of bring this to you, and if this is kind of bring you down a peg or two, but each of us, we are only one 
in seven billion people <laughs> on planet Earth, aren't we? <laughs> you ever see those shots of the world? If you go up in a plane ever, maybe is the easiest way to do it. You go on a plane, you get high and high, and you look down and you think, wow, that's my city, that's my, uh, that's my road. It doesn't look quite as important and big as what I thought <laughs> when I was down there. Look at those little people running, that car, there's loads of them. It's, it's a humbling experience. And I think it's important for us to realize our place in the universe. There's seven billion people. I can't even comprehend what that number really means, to be honest. I get muddled up whether it's million, millions, or thousand millions, but I just give up. It's loads of people. Also, in the whole span of history, our lives are just a moment. The Bible says it's like a blinking of an eye, our lives. The psalmist writes, man is just a phantom. It's just a breath. Our lives are gone. Now, whoa, look at this. There you go. Who wants it? <laughs> Wee. I should have done a little flick there. That would have been brilliant. Yeah, humility, everyone. You lot, I like that, but me. I could have done a great move. <laughs> now, I mean, I think with all this, with that slight pause, you're thinking, yeah, good need a bit of jollity. That was, uh, that was pretty harsh. Whoa, you're making us feel like we can't do anything. Well, actually, reflecting on our smallness shouldn't stop us believing that we can make a difference, but it should change how we try to make that difference. Because such a humble assessment recognizes we need to share the load here. We need even to think about not even just now, but passing on the baton. Our, the, our goals, our desires, our callings will not be finished in our lifetime. Are we preparing our legacy? Sure, I think it's probably best to put it like this with Elijah. You've seen the stories. You know what this guy was up to. You know his faithfulness. You know his obedience. You know his supernatural power. If even Elijah couldn't complete his mission on his own... How are we going to? There's a case actually to make that Elijah failed in his mission. I don't know if you knew that. Looking from one angle, his, his mission was, I want to change the people of God back from following Baal, turning them back to God. That's what I want to do. In many state ways, politically and among the main body of the people, when he goes to heaven, the state of the nation is worse than when he starts. You think, oh, he's failed. No, he's not failed. His legacy hasn't been actually that he hasn't done it himself. He's left Elisha. He's left the company prophets in Gilgal. He's one in Bethel, one in Jericho. That's his legacy. Generations follow. In a sense, we follow in his footsteps. Who are we investing in? Recognizing our humility. Because investing in others takes humility. But secondly, investing in others also takes confidence. For Elijah, he got alongside Elisha. And it seems got alongside these groups of prophets as well. And what was his goal? Well, his goal was to hand on to them what God had put in him. Okay? He was going to hand on to them what God had put in him. Look at Elisha's request in the passage. What Elijah says to him, as he's, as he's about to go, he says, right, tell me what is it that you want? And Elisha says, he replies, okay, give me a, a double portion of your spirit, it says. Now, we can go into much more detail about what that verse means, how does that all work. But what we can say for sure, without any digression at this point, is that <clears throat> what he's saying really is, I want to be like you. Elijah, I want to be like you. I see something in you. I want to take. And from, actually, from Elijah's, we might think, that's, yeah, that's a very good thing to say. But from Elijah's point of view, from all that we see here, you'd probably think that he'd say to Elisha on the back of his, well, it's up to God, so, which is what Elijah says. He'd say, actually, good answer. Because I want you to be like me too. Can I, can I ask you, do you want other people to be like you? It's kind of, I found that question an uncomfortable one when people ask to me. It sounds a bit proud, doesn't it? I want other people to be like me. What well, do you? Do you want 
there to be when you die? Do you want there to be other people like you around? The people close to you, people in church. Do you think, you know what, I, want, I wish there were more people who had that thing that God's given me. Actually, that's not proud to think like that. We should be thinking like that. We should, God has done a work in us that we want to share with other people. I know there are some bits of me that, I, that I'd prefer other people to be like, some I'd prefer them not to be like. You know, which of those are the most important? Who knows? We've got to work that one out. But there are things in us that we need to pass on to others. Look, if you're a Christian here, can I just spell out the reality of the situation as laid out in the Bible for you? Here's the deal. When you chose to follow Jesus, the Bible is very clear. It says you were born again. You became a new creation. The, the old nature that actually at root hated what's right and hated God has been turned upside down so that your desire now is to serve God because suddenly you love him and you want to go towards him instead of running from him. You've had a change done in you. That's not all. On top of that, when you became a Christian, God himself came to live in you by his Holy Spirit. Wherever you go, you carry God around with you. Inside you, pricking your conscience, giving you strength against temptation, giving you those nudges of what to do. But not just that. God's entered into an agreement with you to now change you progressively to be more and more like his son Jesus. To be more and more like Jesus. It's not anything you did for all that stuff. Sorry, you didn't earn that. It wasn't because you were really great, okay? God's done that for you. Now, of course, there'll be some things, many things, that you still need to work on. You're going to still make mistakes. You're going to mess things up every now and again, sometimes more than others. But I wonder, when we come to the conclusion, sometimes which we all do, to say, I don't think I've got anything to give anyone else, I wonder whether we're showing a lack of confidence in ourselves, or are we actually showing a lack of confidence in God? Because as Christians, God has put lots in us. We have a responsibility with what he's done, but we've also got to stand back and say, God, you've done it. I want to see more of it, fan it into flames, do more, but I want to share it with others as well. Now, whoever you are here, actually, just on general, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you're bound to have something important to give to others, lessons to pass on, wisdoms and skills. And if you're not a Christian... I'd encourage you, on top of all that, while that's good and there's a, there's a general message here you could take away today, okay? I, ho- I hope you do. I think this is, there's universal wisdom here. But if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you just to think of those things and say, well, Jesus actually offers you a whole lot more. He offers to take hold of your natural gifts and your character and purify them, sharpen them, and increase them. People often, I think, think of People becoming a Christian is kind of a step down. Okay, I've got to give stuff up. I'm going to become less. I'm going to shrink in some way by doing that. I lose loads of things. Well, there were definitely sacrifices to be made. Becoming coming a Christian, coming to Jesus, that's, that's a, a given. But I tell you what, actually God's plan for his children is to give us more. And actually he gives us more so that we can share it with others. Invest in others then. You need humility. You need confidence. But the final thing you need is much more practical. Once you've wrestled with those two things, yeah, okay, that's the case. You need to take action as well. You need to be proactive in all this. Elijah didn't just wander around and wait for people to come to him. He deliberately sought people out to invest in them. 
calls Elisha, takes him into his service, chooses to spend his final days seeking out the companies of prophets. He's proactive and in, about investing in others. And I think that we need to be too. And I want to end with just three simple things, scatter three things out of, pl- of areas we can do this. First one is in church, how we do this in church. Now, there are loads of different ways you could do this within church. You know, we could, we could talk in detail. But I think more generally, just a general point here is the way we proactively do this is simply by being church together. And keeping on being church together. How do I apply this in the church? I'd say this, don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the community of God's people. Because church is not a place that we go. It's not a program of services that we attend. No, it's a community we are part of. And as such, it is by nature all about investing in other people. That's what church is. By being a part of a church, what you're saying is, is I cannot do it on my own. I need this group of people around me for all sorts of reasons. I'm, by being a part of a church, what you're saying is, I'm committed to investing in others and for them investing in me. On the flip side, when people step out and say, oh, frustration, there are frustrations, we all know that. They say, I go, right, now that's it, I'm off. What you're saying is, no, I'm going it alone. No, I'm going to be the lone ranger. I can take some people, I can take this world on my own. No, we don't do that. We keep on. Church can be frustrating. Church can have difficulties, disappointments. Okay? Each, we know that stuff. But no, we commit to investing in others. We commit to the church. And we, why we structure our church like we do. Think of our worship times. Why do we leave those spaces? If you've not been with us today, you'll see this uh, as time goes on. We leave space at the end of the songs. And there's bits in the middle where people interrupt, where people share what, what they feel God's speaking to them. A bit from the Bible, a, a song, some spiritual gift of, of some, some kind. Why, why do we do that? Why do we endeavor with that? Why do, why do we sit through those awkward pauses sometimes where you just think, come on, band, play another song, just get on with it, okay? Why do we do that? We do it because like, of this. We, don't want, we want to make it sure that you don't need to be an audience, a spectator in something when we worship. Now, in the worship, you have a chance to make a mark. That's a funny way to look at it. We have a chance to worship God, don't we? Yeah, but actually, we want to give you a chance to invest in others in the worship. Two key chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, that talk about gifts of spirit, what we should do in worship. In the middle of those, it's a very short chapter. It's a very powerful chapter. It's all about love. Because actually, how we do our worship, we want it to be a time where we're thinking, coming, I want to bless other people. I want to benefit others. I want to leave a deposit with other people. The song, a bit of wisdom, something God's been speaking to you about, a prayer. Actually, it's those times where we leave our mark. I remember times in, in worship times we've had as a church where people just said something, and those things have stuck with me for years and shaped the very nature of my walk with God. That person's left their mark through me. I don't know what else that person's done. I can think of an individual not moved on to a different church now. They've left the mark in that moment for me. That's how we do the worship like that. Take that opportunity. I'd encourage you. Well, our life groups. We have midweek groups. We meet and we call them life groups. Different ty- styles of ones. I've heard many people say before, I don't really go to life group. So, to be honest, I just don't get much out of it. If, uh, if you've ever said that or thought that secretly before, I just want to tell you... Uh, I'm, I'm on the same page sometimes, you know. I definitely would recognize life group evenings where I've gone, I didn't get a lot out of this evening. However, I, just because I think that can be the case, I still don't think those two things follow. I'm not going to life group because I didn't get much out of it. 
Is that why we go? Is that what we're there for? How about flipping that over? No, I might not have got out of it, but what did I give? How did I invest in others this evening? Do we go with that mentality to these things? Obviously, hope life groups and all the things we do do help you to do the things God has called you to. But there's another reason, maybe a more important reason for all of these things. It's to leave a deposit of what you've got with others to bless and build them up. And you know what? That's just not, not just a nice thing to do or fair bit of give and take. You help me, I'll help you. No, that's how we really make our mark. That could be your legacy. It's not to be sniffed at. Secondly, firstly in the church, we're proactive. Secondly, in our workplaces, we're proactive. And I think perhaps this is even more important. At work, so often, we can think of our role as simply getting by, not going under, and then having this little message we've got that if the opportunity arises, we share it. That's what we do at work. Okay? We just get by, and if we can tell someone the good news of Jesus, little testimony or something, we've got a message we can do that. That's how that whole thing uh, works. Okay? Now, I in no way want to downplay the importance of sharing the gospel with people and telling people about Jesus, but I wonder if that's a slightly limited view of what we each have to offer in our workplaces. On a Monday morning, you don't just go into your workplace with a message to share. You go in with a life that is being shaped by the grace of God through the work of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what? You may not be an Elijah. I'll rephrase that. You will not be an Elijah, but in a sense, you have more because you carry Jesus into your workplace each Monday, each Tuesday, each Wednesday, each Thursday, each Friday. Jesus told us that his church are the light of the world. We shine out these things. We're the salt of the earth. We kind of get in and we make a difference through those things. You know what? I think we need to put ourselves proactively in places in our work where our light can shine. Can I ask you, can you take on more responsibility in your work? There are opportunities for you at the moment. Are there opportunities for you at your work to develop your leadership skills? Leadership, if done as God wants to, should be just how do we influence and invest in more people? Take those opportunities. Are there teams at work where you could be more vocal? Not to be a pain, but to share something of the values that God's put in you with others. I I love hearing stories. We all meet together at our church. We meet in three sites, those who knew knew here. And each uh, term, last week was an example, we meet all together in, in the cinema, Church Central 1. And I love it. Often in that setting, we hear stories from people in their workplaces, don't we? And like how they're bringing the kingdom at work. And I know some guys in, in this room here and at other sites, God would have given great responsibility and influence at work, like uh, Mark in, in education and Barbara uh, in the NHS and others uh, as well. But you know what? It's those stories. So I'm like, yes. I came from, I was a teacher for many years. And lots of people were like, say, oh, you came to full-time ministry. Like, that's a promotion for me. No, in a sense, I see it as a sideways move, but there's a sense where I'm stepping back. It's you guys in your work. You're on the front line. My job is to encourage you to go out there, but I'm not there. You're there. I love to hear stories of, I don't know if he's here today, Matt Mann. Is Matt here? Yeah, Matt, Matt. Matt, just going through difficult training to be a teacher, keeping going. I thought sometimes Matt's like, is he going to make it to the end of this? I was thinking, if I were you, maybe I don't know if I would, learning some of the things that are going on. Be pushed through, and now we see him bringing the kingdom at work. I know that's your mentality, Matt. It's a massive example to us. 
See Michael McMillan. Difficult places in the council. Is Mike here? Shoo, kids. Skyving today, obviously. Oh, no, just Joe. We'll come to kids in a second. But in di- some of the most difficult people in our city, if you talk to Mike about the joy he has, he says, you know what? We cleared up this area of crime in this area. We, de- we, we helped this family who was struggling with this. He's bringing the kingdom in his work. He's impacting others, taking responsibility, leading teams to do things the same sort of way. And many others here would be the same. We've all got different capacities. We've all got different skill sets. But if opportunities arise, I would encourage you to see those opportunities not just as financial opportunities or through the lens of career progression, but understand often this can be how we can advance God's kingdom. Think of this. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this before. But could it be in your work that even if your friends at work or your team at work or whoever they are, even if they don't become Christians... They could catch something of the compassion and the integrity that Jesus has put in your heart and build it into their practice in a way that even though they personally don't follow Jesus, that they advance God's kingdom in those areas as even when you've gone. I think that's possible. I think we should aim for that, actually. We pray they become Christians, too. Let's be proactive in investing in people in our work. And finally, in our home as well. I know this one here is not going to be for all of us, okay? And some of you actually looking around might be on the receiving end of this one. But I'd like to uh, finally apply this to parents. Actually, this is the application here that I think we can see in the passage. This is how Elijah is presented in the passage. Elijah is presented as a father who's passing on what he knows to his children. See that? As Elisha says to him, his final words, Father, Father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's what, how Elisha saw him. He was a spiritual father. These companies of the prophets, that's uh, the NIV's translation is the company of the prophets. Actually, the Hebrew is the sons of the prophets. These guys, they've organized groups who recognize we need to learn from our fathers, like Elijah. You see, the parenting advice of our culture would say, don't be proactive in shaping your children. Our society would tell us to let them find their own path. To respond to their needs first and foremost. To avoid overly influencing them, overly forcing their hand. It's on the society side. You know what the Bible says? Lots to say on this. We need to get into it as parents. We need to learn it. We need to really go for this because it's a hard gig we've got here, guys. But on the other side, this is what the Bible says. Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We train our children. I'd encourage you, your parenting, train your children. What do we train them to do? We train them to be like Jesus. But you know what? Probably one of the main ways we do that is we train them to be like us. Are you confident God's put enough in you? Are you chasing hold of him enough that you can say, I want my kids to be like me? That's where we need to be as parents, guys. I'm sure you know this already, but I just want to underline it for you. Your children will be your legacy. And if you don't shape them in your image, then they will be shaped in the image of this world by forces completely out of your control with much worse agendas than you could possibly have. Train up a child in the way you should go. This realisation affects the time we spend with our kids, the interest we show in their hobbies, us coming alongside them. We see that Elijah comes alongside Elisha. They're walking, they're talking, they're shoulder to shoulder. But it also affects how we speak into their lives, how we train them. 
Okay, sorry for those of you who, as I said, are on the receiving end of this. Like, you know, oh, trained, what's going on? What are they, my parents doing to me? But you know what? We're blessed, and I can look around here and see many of you guys who are uh, still class yourselves as kids who are blessed by having wonderful parents who've taken this on board. I encourage you, keep on going, parents. I want to just finish with a, maybe a very special application for dads here. Now, I know this isn't a trendy thing to say. I know it's not a popular thing to say. I know that some of you will disagree with me on this. Okay, and if you do, I'd love to talk about it. This isn't me giving you, must be this, but this is where I'm at when I look at the Bible. I see in the Bible that fathers are called to lead their homes. It seems to be repeatedly in there. If you disagree, if you're wise, they say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean here? If you've seen bad models of that, that's not the end of a conversation. Talk to us about it. We'd like to talk that through, but I see that in Scripture. And in my parents, in my three kids, I take that on board. And one of the big questions I've got to ask often is, yeah, I see it. But apart from just bossing Gemma about, what does that actually mean? Because <laughs> like, I, I, actually, I, I would say I don't really want to do the first. Sometimes I do actually want to do the first. But that's not what it means. I know that. But well, how, what does it mean to lead my home? What does it mean to, to, to lead my family? For, for me as a dad, actually, one of the key ways I apply this is in the discipline of my children. I feel a weight that is on me in this area. I want to be very clear about this. My wife, Gemma, is brilliant at how she disciplines the children. And she usually gets the balance much better than what I do. I'm good at laying down blanket rules. She goes, but don't you understand the reason for that, Johnny? Come on, let's think of the situation. She knows the kids better than me. She spends more time with the kids. She actually uh, dishes out more of the face-to-face rewards or punishments you know what? It's very clear in our house. Just, just so you know, this might undermine what I'm saying. I checked this with Gemma before I came so I can say this, okay? <laughs> How that works, I don't know. But anyway, it's very clear in my house that I oversee discipline in my family. She was unsure of the word oversight. She preferred line manager, strangely. I don't, get, I don't, I don't see that, but anyway. And what that meant is this. When we had our kids, I was the one who said, look, Here's what, where I think we should be going with this. This is what the model I think we should use. It wasn't a diktat. We'd worked it through here, but I brought that to the family. So we go along. I take on myself. I must be continually asking the question, saying, you know what, how's it going? Do we need to change this? How's that? And kind of maybe someone's saying, look, we, we seem to be on a different page here. I'm asking that question. I'm on that whole thing. I'm not just thinking everything's going to turn out all right. And it's not because I don't trust Gemma either. I just take it as my prerogative to ask those questions and keep on top of family discipline because I want to train up my children in the way they should go. I want it to be a legacy for us. Because actually, whether I want them to or not, they will be. And what's interesting about the legacy of your children is there'll be a legacy for me that you will see and I will see before, probably, before I die. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to continue the things God's put in my heart. Just time is passing, but I want to say this publicly. It is wonderful to have people in our church when there's to make this concrete for us. Really good. And I've mentioned a, a few just to, on a journey. But for our church, most of us as parents who have kids who are still at home. I want to just say with Andy and Heather, for you guys, it is brilliant to have Andy and Heather with us who we can see it's not finished yet not finished article obviously but uh, kids have grown up you know some left home and we can see those kids and you know what those guys have done a fantastic job of training up their children you've basically got five mini Andy and Heathers as far as I can see (laughs) and what's so funny about I was thinking about that is if Nathan or Beth or Rachel were here today 
for lots of kids, <laughs> I don't know what, what you guys think. If you said, well, you're a mini Russ, I don't know what you'd say about that. I don't know what I'd say. If you're a mini your dad, I'd probably be like, ah. They'd say, great. That's exactly what we're going for. I want to commend you guys. I want to say to all of you, listen to what these guys say. Look at them. If you want to help your parenting, go and talk to them because they've trained up their children in the way they should go. They haven't let the world get in. They've been proactive. They've made mistakes. Grab them. Follow example because we want to do this together, guys. Kids here, we're on a mission together for the kingdom of God. Let's conclude. We live in changing times. We live in uncertain times. We live in times when I'm sure as much as ever, if not more, we as Christians are asking, how can we be a force for good in this world? Please understand, firstly, such a feeling is good and right. God calls us, like Elijah, to seek after, pray for, and work for our nation to turn back to God. We have big fish to fry here. Okay, That's good. But at the same time, we've got to recognize we cannot do it on our own, however gifted we are. And you're not called to go it alone. You're called, like Elijah, to invest in those around you so that together with those around you now, and even those who you leave behind when you die, we can see our nation one day changed and turn back to the God who loves them.